he says it was my idea. I know it was his idea because I never went to him and said, Mr. Lewis, you should sell this successful store <laughs> and uh, to the employees, by the way, and put a distillery in the parking lot. I never said that to him. I um, promise it'll all work out. <laughs> yeah. And here we are. You know, it, it worked. We're a bourbon company. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. New Riff has been a brand that many whiskey enthusiasts have followed for a lot of years, and I was excited to have Jay Arisman on the show once again to talk about his vision for New Riff. Jay came into the industry with no production experience at all, but he learned the ropes quickly, and under the guise of Ken Lewis, New Riff put a focus on unique grain experimentation instead of looking at cask finishes. And over time, that itch for curiosity has built famous releases based on heirloom grains and a brand new vision for single malt. Through collaborations with farmers and consumers, New Riff has charted its own adventure in the spirits world. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with the Buff the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Uh, this week's idea comes from Garrett Mikolka, who writes me on fredminnick.com. I've been spending a lot of time tasting and nosing spirits, mostly whiskeys, and while I love sipping on high-proof spirits, I find that I often have a hard time nosing them. Adding water helps with the ethanol sting, but also seems to alter the nose and flavor. Absolutely. I feel like my palate has been able to acclimate to higher proof more than my nose. Any tips? Well, Garrett, you've come to the right place. If you've ever sat down with me in a tasting I focus a lot on how people nose their whiskey. Now, some of it actually does have to do with your glassware. So I would say take a look at the glass that you are using and alter the glassware to see if your typical method of nosing whiskey changes. Because a glass like the neat glass, which kind of a, this bulbulous, kind of looks like a flower pot, it will, that some of the ethanol, you know, vapors will kind of escape, like it'll kind of dodge your nose. Whereas like the Glencairn, you get that in there and you can't, the whiskey can't hide in there. And I actually prefer, I prefer a glass that the whiskey can't hide on the nose. I want to be able to smell its flaws. So I like a glass that doesn't mock or cover up or take a different way for the, for it to reach your nose. I like that. And not not everybody does, but I do because I want to be able to smell flaws. The other thing is that where you put your nose in relation to the rim has a big impact. Now, some people will treat this like wine. Like if you take a look at some of the great sommeliers like Isabel or Paolo Barberi, they will stick their nose right in there. And, you know, I mean, their nose hairs are damn near touching the wine. Like they really get in there. You can't do that with whiskey until you get yourself accustomed to it for your nose. So I would say play around with the distance that the glass, the surface area of the glass is to your nose. So some people can be like three inches away and have a really 
good, effective smell on it. And some people need to get a little bit closer. If you are having to put it into your nose to smell, you know, there's you know, there's something going on there with your nose. That's a, that's a go see a doctor situation. Now, here's the other part. And this is where I think that you may want to start taking this and practicing it. Open your mouth slightly, not all the way, but slightly. I'm not saying like, you don't want to have your jaw wide open where it looks like you're drooling out and someone laughs at you when they see you smelling your whiskey. Just have it slightly open so you can actually have a have kind of a continuous air. So you breathe and you can breathe out your mouth. You can breathe in through your nose and breathe out your mouth while you're smelling. Uh, but also you're relaxing your olfactory. And so when you have your mouth closed, you're putting all that pressure on your on your nose. And so by opening your mouth, you can actually relax it a little bit and you can pick up more than just those alcohol fumes. Uh, that can be very effective. And now my last tip for you, Garrett, is to focus on your individual nostrils. So take the take a glass and kind of curve it up a little bit where you can smell on one side and then go to the other. By focusing on your nostrils, you might find, with your mouth open slightly, of course, you might find that you don't get as much alcohol uh, fumes on each one of those nostrils. So those are my tips. Uh, that's what's worked for me in the past. And it's also what I give to people in my classes when they come to either Blind Bourbon uh, or one of my one of my events uh, around the country. But I hope you can apply them and I hope that we helped your nose improve its efficiency. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you'd like to be like Garrett, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. And if I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. It's another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. And I'm excited about today's show because we're going to have a guest on that has been a prior guest on the show back before it was, I don't know what we would call it, pre-minic days. I think it's the best way to go it. Back when it was better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. He's not, folks. He's not. Ryan's been getting his jabs in. Oh, yeah. But it was back on episode 72. So mm-hmm. it was before we oh, hit the wow. triple digits. So it was, it was a long time ago. But the other side of this is that when the PR people approached us, I was like, man, we haven't had anybody from New Riff on the show in a very long time. And they make amazing quality products. They really hit the ground hard a few years ago by releasing a ton of great whiskey, ton of great single barrels. And that really kind of catapulted them into the mindset of a lot of the whiskey geeks out there. And now, of course, they're starting to infiltrate different markets. They have a different ethos and mantra when it comes to their style of producing whiskeys, when it's particularly all about the grain. And I'm really excited to kind of dig into it as well. Yeah, and our guest, in addition to being so knowledgeable about distillation and grains and so forth, he is the most knowledgeable person about uh, Northern Kentucky whiskey making and Cincinnati whiskey making. This man has a plethora of knowledge, and I've been on him for 10 years to write a book about Northern Kentucky. Well, you want to ghostwrite it for him? No. <laughs> He's an actual Trying writer. Trying to get him to pay you? He's an actual writer. Like, his his background is English. Oh, okay. And he can he can cite Shakespeare and all that. He's an incredibly talented and brilliant mind. And I've been on him for a very long time to write this book. This world needs this book. So if you are listening to this, make sure you reach out to Jay and say, where is that damn book on Northern Kentucky distillery history? You know, uh, all right. Bourbon and Geta. I've done my, <laughs> I've done my part. Every time we get together, I bring this up. So. Yeah, I guess so. Well, that's a good introduction. So today on the show, we have Jay Arisman. Again, he was back on episode 72. Back then we called him a VP, but nowadays he goes by co-founder, global brand ambassador, and does vice presidential things from time to time. And as well as we just found out, he's also a Shakespearean. So Jay, welcome back What's to the show. What's your favorite quote? Thanks guys. Good to be here. So what is your favorite Shakespeare quote? Hit us with one. Oh, putting me on the spot. Didn't know you were going to go That's down this Fred's, path, did Fred's you? Fred's fault. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's see. I think it was uh, something from Falstaff who said, if I could teach my sons one sound principle, it would be to addict themselves to sack, which is a word for sherry. And as a, as a sherry lover, that's one of my go-tos for Shakespeare. I love it. Love it. Yeah, there we go. Well, it's good to maybe have you back on the show. And I think we need to give people a little bit of a background about sort of where you came from and how you got to New Riff. Because if people go back, I mean, you were doing a lot of stuff with Ken Lewis at the Party Source and everything like that until New Riff came online. So kind of give folks a little background about your history and sort of how you got into the business too. Sure. So I went to work for uh, Ken Lewis at the Party Source, the the iconic Northern Kentucky retailer. At the time, he also owned the the liquor barn chain in uh, in Louisville, and I went to work for him in two thousand one, which is like a, an eon ago in bourbon terms. It's like the, only the second age of Middle Earth back then. <laughs> we had we had three rise, no four rise on the shelf, and it it was a, a time ago. You know, it's just so different back then with where bourbon was. And uh, we were the largest retailer in Kentucky. And so we had a really nice vantage point to watch as our nation's uh, native whiskey 
uh, took off again and, and came into this renaissance of the 21st century. So many things happened. Rye came back and, and, and all of this. Um, we had the opportunity, given our leverage and, and business, to really have some intimate reach into the warehouses and, and businesses here in Kentucky, the distilleries, and could do some really exciting uh, novel projects with them, the kind of thing that, that they can't do today. But we, we tried doing it back then. We launched people's private barrel programs, for example. Now everybody has one. But at the time, we were sometimes saying, you haven't done that before, but I'd like you to do it for us. And they said, well, we, we can look at that. It was a wild ride, I guess. Uh, now, we, you did some private Van Winkle picks back then, right? Uh, I did do one of those, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I uh, kick myself to this day for not taking <laughs> all three barrels. I just took my favorite of the three of them. But... We did uh, our own experimentals, things like that. So we, we had back then a, a really powerful program, and uh, it, it, that crossed with Ken Lewis's entrepreneurial brilliance. That's what Ken is, really. He's one of those entrepreneurial geniuses that the United States of America seems to create from time to time. And his uh, field happened to be alcoholic beverage retail, and he... he change the landscape of retail in Kentucky. It's a completely different state than it was before he got into business. How so? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, sales on Sunday, the minimum pricing uh, markup laws. He, he got law after law after law changed in Kentucky, sometimes to the point of, of calling the, the Alcoholic Beverage Commission and saying something like, I am going to sell liquor tomorrow by a credit card. You might want to come and cite me. And he would win these court cases and changed the way uh, business is done in, in Kentucky. So he's a, a visionary retailer in that way, a visionary businessman. And it was his entrepreneurial genius that could see that this this work we were doing in in fine spirits, but in, in bourbon, could could go somewhere. He, he could see that I had a vision for a distillery before I even knew I had a vision. So to speak. <laughs> yeah. he sort of you know, breathe the life into it. And uh, he says it was my idea. I know it was his idea because I never went to him and said, Mr. Lewis, you should sell this successful store <laughs> and uh, to the employees, by the way, and put a distillery in the parking lot. I never said that to him. I uh, promise it'll all work out. <laughs> yeah. And here we are. You know, it, it worked. We're a bourbon company. I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing story about how that came to be. And for anybody that doesn't know, you can also listen to some episodes in the past that we also had Ken Lewis on, and he was able to kind of share that story as well. So I always love being able to hear your side of the story and how you got into it. So just being in the, the you were in the retail side, but how did you get into the side of saying like, okay, let's do the distillery thing. And how did you get smart on doing everything on that side too? Yeah, good question. You know, a lot of it was just uh, doing my homework. YouTube um, videos. It, it probably goes yeah. back. I was, I, I didn't, I'm not a chemical engineer. I didn't go to school for that. I'm a, a, an English major, liberal arts. Woo, waves, tiny pennant. You know, we, we really can do anything, uh, liberal arts major. I love it. Uh, it I, uh, I do my research and, and learned a lot. I was a home brewer, and that uh, was an important step back in, you know, my college days. I brewed beer, and that taught me fermentation and uh, got me down the road of knowing about grains and yeast and things like that. And I uh, soaked it up, I guess, uh, being... Uh, 
hobbyist or a, a, having a passion for for everything alcoholic, but but particularly spirits, from the time I was <clears throat> teen years old <laughs> and uh, left my freshman dorm room with a scotch collection. Uh, by the time I got out of there, and uh, that just morphed into uh, you know a, a desire to learn about everything. So we did know, however, we needed some help to pull this all off, and so we we hired a consultant to help us with New Riff, and that was Larry Ebersold. And on on Larry's advice, we hired a brewer, actually, to be uh, a head distiller for us, and that's Brian Sprantz. And it's his production team that really makes uh, New Riff's whiskey happen on the ground, you know? It's yeah. fascinating. Like, three of my new favorite brands actually hired brewers as their distillers. New Riff, Sagamore, and uh, Chattanooga down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they're really pushing the envelope, you know, with... American distillation, you know, taking that brewer's mindset and adapting it to bourbon and kind of intertwining them. We're, you know, when you're coming out with new riffs, like first, this is what we're going to be as a company. And this is the whiskey we want. Where, what inspiration, like, where, I guess what inspired you to kind of say, this is where we're going to go? Like what brands or what companies or, you know, that you kind of picked from or liked from that? Sure. Well, let me, let me walk that back a little bit from something as simple as grain bills all the way back to the really sort of seeds of how we wanted to make whiskey. Uh, I mentioned the return of rye, and uh, we decided we wanted to be rather rye-centric for a, a uh, Kentucky bourbon distillery, uh, more so than, than most of them are. We watched as high rye bourbons became a thing, became a part of the lexicon. When I was a kid, if you were smart, you knew about weeded bourbon, right? You even knew such a thing existed. There was no such thing as high rye. And when, when that became a, a category and something to learn about and, and mash bills started to be discussed in the, in the mid-2000s, as really as the Seagram's uh, distilleries gained some independence and, and started to be you know, coming back to life, if you will, we saw that really get eaten up by the consumers, by, by whiskey lovers. Uh, and it became a, not a fad. It became a, a part of the, the, the landscape of bourbon was this new attention to rye, not only as rye whiskey, but also to that grain in, in bourbon. So we didn't take long before we settled on we're going to be high rye. In, in most of our mash bills. That doesn't mean we, we don't like weeded bourbon. We make weeded bourbon, you know, but we, we are going to focus on, on rye-centric distillations to the point today that we actually, between our 95% rye uh, whiskey that we make and our 30% rye in the bourbon mash bill, along with all the other ryes we make, we actually mash on an annual basis about 20% more rye than corn. Nobody does that in Bardstown or in Louisville, where the old-time distillers tried to make as little rye as they could possibly get away with. And, and so here we are mashing a majority of the rye grain. So, so there was that. Um, we wanted to make big-tasting whiskeys. We didn't want to make mild... Not too strong. Smooth. Bob's boring <laughs> yeah. bourbon. Right? Bob's boring bourbon. Yep. Not too much flavor. We wanted to to have you know mucho gusto in, in our whiskeys. And uh, a ticket to that was was also rye. But back before then, we didn't know on day zero that we would be high rye or that we would have a devotion to bottled and bond whiskey. That's the only way we bottle uh, whiskey, with the exception of our single barrels, which are barrel proof and so they can't be bottled and bond. But everything else is bottled and bond. We didn't know at day zero we would do that. We we came to that later. We knew on day zero we would be no chill filtration. 
And that was really the, the founding cornerstone, if you will, of, of whiskey quality at New Riff. Uh, not ever to filter whiskey and remove and attenuate some of everything we love about whiskey. And that uh, I learned from, to give credit where it's due, from the Scots, uh, most of all from Springbank Distillery in Campbellton, uh, the greatest whiskey distillery in the world as far as I'm concerned, and, and wow. the most influential one, arguably, in, in our lifetimes. So many innovations came out of Springbank's work in whiskey, and you, you don't notice it today, but if there's an unfiltered whiskey, or we were talking earlier about finishes, and all that stuff started at, at Springbank. So they were the, the sort of the North Star that I pegged New Rift to, to the extent that I had my hand on the, the tiller, if you will, at New Rift. And there's a lot of people with a hand on the tiller, but I was certainly one of them. And to the extent I did, I, I guided it along those precepts, independence, innovation, but also an unswerving devotion to quality. And so those things we knew we would do at New Riff. Yeah. I would say one of the things that has really stood out with everything that you've done is that you've had some more foresight into the future in regards of what the type of products you're going to be coming out with, because everything is really focused on different types of like heirloom grains and heirloom materials. And it's like, to be able to think of that four years ago and to think, oh yeah, this is, this is where we're going to go. We're going to have the, uh, what was it like the turkey wheat or it's like all these, uh, what was the other ones that recently came Balboa out? Balboa and all these. Balboa other. rye, like all these other kind of things. Like those have been staples that people have kind of like said like, oh, this is really good stuff. This is amazing. It's not going like, oh, we got to go chase the new, whatever kind of crazy finish thing. But instead you all said, well, we're going to rely on the grains to kind of speak for themselves. Was that a decision early on to say, all right, let's take away some of the production capacity that's going to be going towards flagship and let's kind of put down some of this other stuff and we'll see what happens. Yes, uh, broadly speaking, we we wanted, as you mentioned, flagships and 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 primary products, but we also wanted a lot of room to make, you know, as the back of the bottle says, a new riff on an old tradition. And we wanted to give ourselves plenty of room and leeway and permission to make these, if I could call them, riffs. You know, you can. This is your show. You can call them whatever you want. <laughs> That's right. So I guess we wanted to most of the time. Make whiskey, if, if this makes sense, make a whiskey from whole cloth. Uh, we don't make a new product by just shoving it in a, in a new barrel or, or toasting it finally or something like that. We make it from the ground up, sometimes from the field up. And there's a, um, a degree of, you know, inarguable authenticity about crafting a whiskey that every time you make a new one, well, that's four more years. Yes, yeah. we're going to have to wait. You know, we 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 cannot respond quickly to a fad. We hope we could, you know, maybe create a fad. Maybe <laughs> maybe be out in front of them sometimes if if we get lucky. But just to to make a whiskey from, as I say, whole cloth to make it from the ground up, I think is a powerful way to make whiskey. It's also a slow way to make whiskey. In terms of, of crops and grains, it can be a little frustrating way to make whiskey. We have occasionally lost a crop to, uh, you know, wind damage or something like that. So there are, um, there are hazards that go along with that. 
To the point of uh, of grains, I, I don't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily say we are grain focused so much as that's a, a very important part of making again a whiskey from the ground up and uh, allowing that to be part of your canvas. Don't just paint, if you will, with the same old flavors. Uh, when we went to make a weeded bourbon, for example, we wanted to get a wheat of real flavor and learning about about how wheat, particularly wheat over the years, has been very dumbed down compared to other grains. Modern hybrid rye has got still a lot of flavor. Uh, modern hybrid wheat is is meant to make white bread. It's meant to make white flour, and uh, like we see in in you know in the store, and that is a very different rye than ex- or wheat uh, than than what existed 100 or 150 years ago. So we went to make a wheated bourbon, and we we wanted to make one with a, a wheat a wheat that really has got some flavor, and so we spoke to who else uses wheat in the world? Bakers. We spoke to a company called Blue Oven Bakery. They are the the artisanal bakery in in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, they turned uh, turned us on to red turkey wheat and they uh, they provided the the sort of seed for that that first batch. And so that's a an old fashioned uh, wheat from uh, the 1850s that just has got more flavor than than a modern wheat. It also is less productive. It it creates fewer uh, bushels per acre. It's more vulnerable perhaps to challenges in the farming, but it's is it worth it to go out and 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 grab that flavor what about like fermentation is it is it a producer like a the uh, the traditional wheat that's used or is it do you compromise yields i guess for flavor on the on the turkey wheat in in most of the heirloom grains there is uh, a little it's first of all uh less uh productive out of the field so for a given for an acre our farmer can deliver us fewer pounds of of red turkey wheat and and the other heirloom grains they often do have a little less starch, a little more of things that can't be turned into bread or, for that matter, alcohol, uh, things like protein. But that's where the flavor lies. And that's what is is lost sometimes in many uh, modern grain varieties or certainly in, in modern wheat. I had a, a passion for heirloom grains and heirloom flavors. I'm a member of the organization Slow Food. Perhaps you've heard of yeah, yeah. Slow Food. Uh, and I'm a, a member of that in Cincinnati, a, a prior board member, and I'm sensitive to the preservation of old flavors. And w- I always wanted us to be able to work in, in heirloom grains. The hard part with, with heirloom grains, as opposed to, say, a tomato, uh, is uh, you often have to begin with, uh, with a, a packet of seeds, a, literally like a tablespoon of seeds. And you, you plant that and you get a crop as big as this table and then, that we're sitting at here in your studio. And then you plant that and you get a, a pool table. And the year after that, you get a swimming pool, and then you get a parking lot. And finally, after that, years down the road, you might have enough grain to actually make some batches of whiskey with. So it's it's very challenging as a distillery to work with uh, grain because we need a lot of it <laughs> compared to, for example, the baker, the bakery. Fortunately, uh, we, we I would say we got a little lucky, but we also made our own luck when we partnered with with wonderful people like our, our corn farmer out of Indiana. Charles Fogg, who was, we think, the best corn farmer in the bourbon business and was sowing his fields with an heirloom rye. 
just for the health of his fields. Uh, it was a crop rotation. Like a cover crop? or yeah. A cover crop, right. Yeah. And he just planted it over the winter. And he didn't care, really, if it wasn't the, the most productive rye because it wasn't a, a money crop for him. It was just for the health of his soil. And there he was preserving a 1930s vintage grain, which has not been made, called Balboa. Uh, Balboa rye, which has not been made into rye whiskey in living memory, uh, maybe maybe ever. And it's a different flavor than our normal rye and different than other people's ryes that wouldn't exist if we hadn't uh, hadn't created it and, and saved it. So we were sensitive to those kind of, of almost gastronomical issues and diversity, both, both biodiversity and a diversity of flavor that just can't be imitated by, I got a new toasted barrel last week. And, <laughs> and the, 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 we, we finished it and the, head, the heads of the barrel are French oak. That's it. Or wait, no, Hungarian oak. You know, Those are all viable things too. I think there, there's a, a commitment to making the whiskey from the ground up. And that is mostly what we've done at New Riff. Yeah, How did well, you- a lot of people, a lot of people have tried this though, I, I, and I think this is this is why people go to finishing. It's because it's easier, it's safer. Playing around with with, with grains, as you said, Jay, is is from the ground up. It is the biggest risk that you can take when you it are is. trying to alter the flavor profile of of your whiskey because you have you cannot forecast whether or not it's going to be good. That's right. You all gotten lucky. Or <laughs> I was kind of curious if like you had a bunch of hits. Have you had any misses? <laughs> well, uh, they don't to, talk about that. To the point, <laughs> to the point first of Fred's you know comment about getting lucky. We we got lucky, but if I could defend us a little bit, we got good as well. We had. I I, I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Know, it came off as a little crass. That's but okay. I didn't mean that. That's okay. We expect well, that Fred. from you, Fred. We're, we're yeah, used to that. Yeah, that's know. true. We have we have thick skin. All of us. <laughs> uh, no. Um, it is a little bold, if I may say, to to make whiskey that way, to commit yourself. We're going to put it in the barrel and, and hope it works out. Uh, but we had, um, you know, we did all our homework. We also had great instruction from our consultant, Larry Ebersold, and uh, a lot of things set up to help us succeed in the first place. But on top of all that, we have had definitely some amount of luck. We've only had a couple batches of things that we are really shaking our heads about now. For example, <laughs> uh, we, we work with malts and, and malted barleys in some of our bourbons as well, different malted things. Malted, we make 100% malted rye whiskey that, of course, you've, you've had and, and people love. You can malt almost any grain um, can be malted, including corn. And so mm-hmm. we did one time try malted corn. And I'm not sure that malted corn will ever see the light of day. We'll, <laughs> we will see what it turns into. Corn is exceptionally hard to malt. Uh, for one thing, it's it's a little higher in moisture natively than uh, than the small grains. And so, man, malted corn, uh, that, that was an adventure. It, it's pretty distinctive stuff. I don't know what we'll do with it. So going going back to the contrast between barrel finishes and, and playing with grains, they're also the consumers understand barrel finishes. You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago they didn't, but n- now they, they understand it, and even to the point where they're like, oh, well, that's in a sherry finish. I didn't want that. Do you have a higher consumer, higher educated consumer? Because you do have to market something that no one else is marketing, and you have to you have to educate them. And people see Balboa, and first thing people are probably thinking is like Rocky Balboa. Absolutely. That was the first thing that came to mind. I'm just thinking like the American... That must have been their favorite movie. Yeah. Yeah. Trunks and everything. (laughs) So talk us through like the, the learning curve for consumers or is there even one? 
If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So going, going back to the contrast between barrel finishes and, and playing with grains, they're also... The consumers understand barrel finishes. You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago they didn't, but now they they understand it, and even to the point where they're like, oh, well, that's in a sherry finish. I want that. Do you have a higher consumer, higher educated consumer? Because you do have to market something that no one else is marketing, and you you have to educate them. And people see Balboa and... First thing people are probably thinking is like Rocky Balboa. Absolutely, that was the first you thing know. that came to mind. I'm just thinking like the American. That must have been their swim- favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. trunks <laughs> and everything. <laughs> so, t- talk us through like the the learning curve for consumers, or is there even one? Yeah, there's I, Fred. There's definitely a learning curve. I'm sure plain old weeded bourbon is a lot easier to understand than something like heirloom rye. And yet once you pass that stuff across somebody's lips and they've never tasted a rye like that before and good luck finding a rye like that on the shelf. It is a singular thing, especially heirloom rye. There's very, very few of them out there on the market. I can count on on one hand, I think, the number of producers I'm, I can guarantee you are working in in genuine heirloom rye in the country. I'm sure there's more. I just don't know about them. But it's it's really, really hard to find heirloom rye. So maybe once we get that that consumer a little educated on it, uh, we, we have really made a fan as opposed to someone who will maybe you know, chase the next red wine that they've never heard of yeah. that, that goes into, uh, be- believe me, I've, I'm, I've got wines and I'm a wine guy too. I've got wines in the back of my head that if, if we ever need something you have never heard of to finish a barrel, I can go get it. You know, Th- there is an ease to that. Again, we have a commitment to making whiskey from whole cloth and from the ground up. And that's our style, I guess. I think there's something to that. I guess you talk about having the foresight and like with the, the grains and the now finishing, but like, you know, it's, I grew up in Barstown and, and, you know, 
bourbon was bourbon and it was good bourbon and you you, you let the whiskey and the wood do the the thing you know and but it, it's amazing like you see the consumer now that like they're not just okay with really good bourbon <laughs> they're just like all over the place they're like i'm going to that to that to that to that and like so how did y'all did y'all think about that when you open your we're like oh this is the new consumer is going to go this way or was it just something like you're like oh this is just like kind of our passion and we want to like if it works, it works. If not, who cares? You know, how right. do you how do you well, not chase the go down the hole of going to the finishes? Is that the kind of way you're thinking? I'm just thinking about the the market, like even just five, six years ago, it, it was like, I just want good bourbon. And now people are the consumer is just like chasing the red. hot. But you had the foresight six years ago to to like, I don't know if that was your foresight or if you just said we're going to do this heirloom grain and all this thing because we like it and we're passionate about it does that make sense Mm, yeah so as we were sitting on this ever increasing pile of whiskey as we started distilling in 2014 and didn't really know exactly what we would do with it we were worried on on day one of distillation or or that first year uh, of of how we would come to market we we just went about making the best whiskey we could and laying it down. And as the years went by, uh, I did wonder. So we're called New Riff. It's it's a new riff on an old tradition, like like a guitar riff or a jazz riff, that tradition being sour mash whiskey making in Kentucky. And I would look around and say, well, hold on. what? Where's the new riff? What are we doing that's, that's new or different? And to a large extent, what we do is very classically inspired. Now, it's, it's high rye. Uh, which was not necessarily a, a common thing a hundred years ago. Uh, so there's that. But we we make sour mash whiskey on a on a column beer still feeding a doubler. It's all copper, just like a whole lot of other places. What are we doing that's different? And sometimes those riffs are very heavy and they're very distinctive, like backsetter or or the Balboa or 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 the uh, wait the choc- backsetter was like the the peated the peated one. That's right. Oh. Chocolate oatmeal style that was, bourbon. That was a miss for me. That we made. <laughs> um, some of them are really. Uh, sort of outlandish, if you will, or, or or powerful riffs. And sometimes they are more subtle riffs. Like winter wheat? Uh, winter wheat. But the riff I'm really thinking about, Fred, is is the the initial one. When, when, we, when on the right day, we talked internally and said, should we make a weeded bur- or a, a bottled and bond bourbon? Should we do a bonded? And that discussion f- took root and 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 flowered and became uh, a recognition that no, we, we it's not that we should do a bottled in bond. We should only do bottled in bond because it's the world's highest standard for quality in a brown spirit. Still to this day, uh, the American 1897 Bottled in Bond Act, higher than the standards in cognac, higher than the standards in Scotland, higher than the standards in, in good Lord, Canadian whiskey, all the things you can add There's, to Yeah, the very few standards to whiskey have up north. Yeah. So Japanese whiskey, it doesn't even have to be made in Japan to be Japanese whiskey. So Bottled in Bond is the world's highest standard for quality. And we realized if we really mean it, you know, across our hearts that, that, uh, quality has to come first at at New Riff. How can we not bottle everything as bottled and bond? And onto that, we appended no chill filtration. So the front of the bottles say bottled and bond without chill filtration. And that is actually, when you really parse out the federal regulations about bottled and bond, that is if I may be so bold, is something of a new paradigm because the one thing that a, a producer, a distiller is allowed to do to a bonded whiskey, 
to change the character of that whiskey from the barrel. You're allowed to do two things. You can add water, obviously, to bring it down to 100 proof. And then the federal language allowed, the regulation states you are allowed to to change the spirit through means of filtration. And the, the word that you actually use is chill proofing. That's their term for chill filtration. So you are allowed to change. Interesting, too, that the federal government acknowledges that chill filtration changes the whiskey. You're allowed to do that. We don't even do that. We take the world's highest standard and we could argue lift it to a new standard, a higher point than that by committing to no chill filtration. And there it was. We, we sat there and looked at, at our, at our we, we were writing an email, myself and, and uh, our VP of operations, Hannah Lowen, and uh, realized there it is. That's the new riff. And it's a, a, a subtle riff that most people don't really notice. But look what we did. We changed the Bottled in Bond Act of 1897, one of bourbon's most hallowed traditions and a, a tradition of quality where, where uh, the, the distillers of the day were standing up and saying, no, we make the good whiskey. It's not those people in Cincinnati that make all that rectified <laughs> whiskey in my hometown. Uh, they stood up for quality. It was the first quality parameters for, for a spirit. And to, to go and modify that, that, I mean, that's some of the holy text, you know. So th- for us, that it, to us internally, that is the core, the beating heart of what New Riff is all about. Mm. It's not, for example, the single barrel program that we have that is so powerful and dynamic and everyone is, is loving our barrel picks. And, and we love doing that. And we love bringing the experience of that as we had as retailers. But anybody can make a single barrel. It takes a different level of commitment to say, the only way we're doing this is bottled and bond. That's my hand. I'm laying it on the table. So to that point, like uh, a lot of brands, you know, they come out with their flagships and they have their core, you know, that they want. And then they kind of offer single barrels. But you all really embraced it like because at the time, you know, the leg- legacy distilleries were kind of drying up on single barrels. And then there was a nice niche for you all to like go in there and be like, well, this is what we're going to offer to a lot of consumers. And, and that was a not only a brilliant move, but it, it, who, who, who was like, okay, this is the way we need to go to get into market. And by the way, the, the market for single barrels was drying up. Correct, yeah. When, from, when New Riff was coming on. And it was, it was a home run, I would say. A riffy home run. Ah, very, we've picked a very funny. Check that. out <laughs> the wit flowing out of Fred Minnick over there. Well, um, it was you know our commitment and our our fun, if we if if we could say that that we have with single barrels was born out of our uh, experience as retailers. We were doing all those picks. You mentioned one earlier, Fred. We we launched other people's private barrel programs sometimes at the party source. We had such a hell of a good time doing that. And we wanted to bring that experience to our consumers and, and let them have fun with it as well. So um, there was... Uh, it was never a doubt that we would have done uh, some single barrel work as well. It turned into a way bigger monster, I think, a wonderful monster than we ever anticipated it, it would. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit because one of the things that you all have also had foresight on is single malt. Kind of explain it because when I was reading the press release about everything that was happening, it kind of looked like, well, we've got four different varieties of single malt we're doing. We're going to throw them in 10 different barrels and... Whatever. We'll see what happens here in a few years. So kind of explain the thought process behind all that. Sure. The thought process behind our single malt project, and it's it's something of a project. It's it's not just one thing. 
We were interested in how malts might get expressed in the what we call the Kentucky regimen, the 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 method of making Kentucky classically in in our state uh, making whiskey here. Sour mash is the 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 shorthand for it, but there's really a lot more to it than that. It's the kind of stills you use, uh, it's the open fermentation. All of these add up to the way we make whiskey in Kentucky. And historically, there is a basis for some malt whiskeys made here, but not, I would say, with the clearly the intentionality of which they do it in a place like Scotland. And we being brewers, Brian and I, he a professional and fantastic brewer and, and me just an, uh, an amateur home brewer, we, we love us some barley malt and we always did. And we were intrigued and, and curious, you know, what would happen running a barley fermentation through the Kentucky Regiment. And we uh, we had a notion to do this before we had even got the stills turned on, and we were exploring that. So uh, we started making some, some malt whiskey uh, towards the end of our first year of production, 2014. When you say Kentucky Regiment, do you mean column still versus pot still? Is yes. That, or, okay, cool. That, that's part of it. It doesn't mean you, you can't make bourbon in a pot still. Of course you can. doesn't mean you can't make bourbon in a pot still in Kentucky. Of course you can't. But in living memory, the style of bourbon is defined by that, that all of those techniques that coalesce into sour mash whiskey making. And we had a conviction that that was a fantastic way to make whiskey. We absolutely do not come down on the side of, well, pot stills are the best way to make whiskey because that's how they do it in cognac. There's people out there who who thought that, and and we we gently disagree, and and think that the Kentucky traditions are a great way to make whiskey too. So we wanted to see what would happen in malt, but we went into this, and and I and my background having tasted a few malt whiskeys that were made in Kentucky on column stills, and seeing some of the the pitfalls of that, we weren't really sure. And this gets back again to making a whiskey from whole cloth, and and being a little bold enough to maybe even fail at it. We went into that not really knowing what would work. And so we didn't just sit down and write up a mash bill and put it away in new chart oak because that's just the way you got to do it in Kentucky. We wanted to, <laughs> maybe that's the best way to make it. Maybe it's not. We weren't sure. And so we made a whiskey. We put it away to multiple different barrel types principally used barrels and new barrels, but also some wine casks uh, in, the, in the manner of malt whiskey making around the world. And then not knowing if that would really fly in four years, we wanted to make another one. And so we did. And then we made another one and another one and another one. You see where this is going. And we, we went a little crazy probably and gave ourselves full reign to explore and find out what what kind of single malt whiskey would really work in this regimen? And along the way, we worked and sort of played around in the entire world that is malted barley. Some of them classic varietals from the United Kingdom. Some of them uh, mash bills that Brian Sprantz came up with that are evocative of classic ales. Uh, one of them is a barley wine style ale. Another one is a Belgian quad style mash bill. These these are not beers. They don't have hops in them. They're not fermented with, with ale yeast. They are, are whiskey beers, and they're certainly fermented that way as well. But we we allowed ourselves room to make a lot of riffs, you know, and, and you know, Brian and I are both musicians. We, we, you know, you think of it as going into the studio and just laying down some tracks. Let's just jam and see what comes out of that. And now we're stitching together the song. 
I like that. That's a what a way with words. I know. You know? We need him to like do He's our. He's got to write a book. He's got to <laughs> yeah. write the book on Northern uh, Kentucky whiskey history. So the other part when you just mentioned there is that you said you know you had tried some Kentucky based single malts before. I mean, kind of fill me in here because I'm trying to think back in time. Like I just now start seeing people well, coming I mean, out Heaven and talking Hill had about some because they had that Parker's malt. Yeah, Town Branch. Uh, Town Branch had some. Uh, MB Roland had some. I think Beams had some before. Okay. Well, you all know. I guess I'm still learning over here. So <laughs> he's still stuck in that sweet so, corn. So when you when you were trying these, like, was that still like was there was, was it an inspiration or it says like, okay, I see what they're doing. That's not what we're gonna do. It, it was taken from that experience and all that homework and, and knowledge base that we had accumulated uh, for myself over the, all those years in, in retail and in, in looking into the Kentucky whiskey scene and, and different companies and tasting a lot of different things. It, it was a, a trepidation uh, about what really would work, particularly barrel-wise. New charred oak barrels are the default standard, and yet the malt whiskeys that I had sampled were over oaked probably maybe the malt was is could it be that it's a little too delicate for new charred oak we didn't really know but we we asked the question and so when we we put these whiskeys away to wood it, it wasn't all new chard it was also some toasted barrels uh it was uh dechar rechar barrels that were used and decharred and then charred again and they uh they gave us a a, a palette, if you will, uh, to draw on later. And maybe we would go down the road and say, you know what? These used barrels are no good at all. Sorry about that. We're, we're going to go new chart. Personally, I think when I taste our, our malt whiskeys, I, I don't necessarily prefer the new or the used. I like them both. I like what they both do. And maybe the, the heart of that malt whiskey lies in between those two barrel types. And it's really the mix of them that hits the nail on the head. It's not one or the other. That said, we're we're happy with where these things have sorted out aging wise, and we're having uh, the time of our lives this summer putting these this blend together for the product that will come out in the fall. Did you learn anything with using the heirloom varieties about different cask finish or you know whatever vessels to to age them in? Did you learn anything off that? Were they similar? Were they didn't necessarily you know go exactly with the Kentucky regimen, or did they hold up with the Kentucky regimen? With the heirloom, um, we we have worked with um, with one, what I would call genuinely heirloom barley variety. It's from the United Kingdom. It dates back to the, mm, I want to say the eighteen twenties. Maybe it's quite old. It's called Chevalier, and uh, it's a, a beautiful has made a beautiful whiskey. We also made uh, a whiskey with Golden Promise, which dates only from the nineteen sixties, but is a classic whiskey of the scotch whiskey industry and then the first one that we reached for from brian and and my experience as brewers was uh, was maris otter and that is a a um, i want to say early 20th century uh maybe late 19th century british uh primarily ale malt uh, some of the classic classic pale ales of the united kingdom were based on maris otter uh, when I made barley wines and, and uh, pale ales as a home brewer, I was often reaching for Maris Otter for that. And they have sometimes, these just straight barleys have made pretty different flavors. Grassy sometimes, but sometimes also nutty and relaxed. Sentimentally, they're probably my favorite things that we make in the in the malt whiskey program. And then there's uh, whiskey number four, which is a Belgian quadruple mash bill. And that was one I thought would have 
a really maybe a strong character. But in the blend, when we are mixing it together, the Belgian quad just slides right into everything else and really gets along, if you will, with all the other uh, flavors. So the, how, how these whiskeys blend together uh, has not proven the way we thought it would. And that's fascinating. Question for you in terms of like sales, like here's the here is where we are with like American single malt is that it seems to be like coast, like West Coast seems to be gravitating toward it. East Coast seems to be gravitating toward it. But the middle middle America does not seem to be reaching for American single malt as quickly as they are bourbon. What are you what are you seeing there from a trend perspective from consumers with with American single malts? Yeah, I, I would tentatively ag- agree with that assessment, more or less, Fred. Uh, and maybe uh, things like our sour mash single malt find their real life in the world in in places like San Francisco and New York and London. I'm not sure they're going to get it in Bardstown. You guys harp on Backsetter every chance you can. <laughs> yeah. I, I never hear the end of it. So that, that went over. You didn't like that. That was the only one. Though. You may that not the like only our one. whiskey. That's, yeah. that's fine with us. Can't bat a thousand. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I mean, there's there's definitely, you're always going to have your hits. You're going to have some misses and everything like that in between. And it'll be interesting to kind of see where the American single malt category goes. You're right. Around here, uh, it would I don't know what we call it blasphemy, but it's definitely something where it hasn't really caught on. Per it's se. even hard to like get people excited about rye whiskey in you know in these parts as much as in the northeast or you out talk west to, you like, talk to retailers yeah. when you're doing like a barrel pick or something they're like you know hey i got a rye oh cool can i get a bourbon though yeah you know definitely in this kind of southeast region midwest is kind of like definitely laser focused on the sweet corn yeah now that you've been traveling and you've been kind of the the global brand ambassador sort of like give us your idea of like where do you see the pockets of where new riff is really taking off and kind of the consumer is starting to latch on to it more. Mm-hmm. Well, just to give one anecdote, uh, we did the uh, New York Whiskey Fest. This is Whiskey Advocates Whiskey Fest a couple of years ago. And we had out on the table, I think, five things. And three of them were rye and two of them were bourbon. And I had you know a goodly number of customers walk up and say, hey, I heard you had some rye here. I, I just want to try the ryes. Can I try these ryes? Like a lot of people said that. Um, yeah, so those ryes are special. There are definitely some places there in the world that uh, – that are more open to more kinds of whiskeys. And uh, I saw that in in our retail career, too. Here in Louisville, Ken's stores didn't need 300 single malts. Our store in Cincinnati, Greater Cincinnati, the party source, I had 300 single malts there because Cincinnati uh, was, I guess, cosmopolitan enough to, to desire those things, let alone folks passing through town from Chicago or, or Michigan or places like that. So we don't necessarily make whiskey only that we think will appeal to this place or that place. Or we, we I guess we don't sit down and say, well, how are we going to sell that in four years? We better make make what everybody wants. To, to some extent, we make what has fascinated us and trust that enough people will follow along and look at the attention that something like, like Balboa Rye gets. That's proving us maybe, maybe correct, that there's, there's plenty of fish in the sea to love things like a sour mash single malt even if you guys can't stand peat <laughs> <laughs> there you go okay. give us a little riff right, right here, there you i'll go. keep you in my prayers <laughs> <laughs> you may you may see the light there we go well jay i want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today yeah, and it was fascinating giving us some more insight into your all's thought process your background and everything like that as well it's been a pleasure to be able to have you back on here we'll have to make sure we don't wait another four years to have you on again mm. amen 
By the way, Jay, yeah. we're we're uh, we're coming up. I think we just had our ten year anniversary of when you first showed me around uh, the facilities before they were all fully built. Probably, yeah. So it 10... would have been the the year before we opened. Yeah, so yeah. you opened in two thousand fourteen. You showed me around two thousand thirteen. So we've known each other for ten years. And I still haven't written that book. No, <laughs> I'm going to be on you like stink on shit, my friend. <laughs> well, good thing you got AI nowadays. It might just help oh, you. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, no, oh, uh-uh. oh, I said it. I uh-uh. said it. No AI on this. <laughs> Only your brain. It, it, gets the, it gets the thought process started. It gets it going. You can, you can edit out. Yeah. You know what? As a writer. Oh, it makes me feel good, doesn't it? Do it right. right. <laughs> Don't worry, Fred. <laughs> take, take six, you know, six to 10 years. You know, once you, once you start. There we go. That's how you do it. Well, Jay, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show. If people want to follow you, find out where you're going to be next, or just follow New Riff in general, how would they do it? Sure. So uh, hashtag New Riff is our handle on uh, all the, the relevant socials, if you will. And you can visit newriffdistilling.com, our website, for uh, a lowdown on all of these things, including once you get there, information on all these whiskeys, but also the chance to dig deeper, to have some deep dives uh, explaining just what in the hell we've done sometimes <laughs> yeah. and you're right you share a parking lot with the party source so you can that place is a impressive. bunch of shopping all at once mm-hmm. come see us we are are actually in the midst of some some serious renovation at uh, new riff uh to the extent that our uh rooftop event space is being turned into for want of a better term the new riff whiskey library and that's going to be oh, nice. a, a powerful new experience uh we've we've got a, you know a bunch of these riffs now behind us and and uh, building a legacy a little bit and maybe now enough to stock up a whole uh, bar with with some of these rarities very cool very cool, cool. i know Sweet. now you can go get everything so make sure you go follow new riff follow burden pursuit on all the socials share this with a friend leave the review of a podcast whatever it is start blowing up burden pursuit because new riff's blowing up so you can always go out there and buy a bottle as well but with that cheers everybody we'll see you next time Vodka sucks. Toodles.